Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollo was at Corinth, Paul, sorry, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery 
bought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, Carl? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would uh, speak to us now through your word, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts so that we would love you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, is that coming through? It sounds a bit quiet. Can you hear me? You hear me okay? Yep, okay. Sorry, it sounds a bit quiet. Uh, over, the, uh, over the holidays, uh, I read a whole lot of books, but uh, I read for the first time Charles Dickens' wonderful novel, uh, David Copperfield. I don't know if you've ever read uh, David Copperfield. It's a great book, uh, and uh, it's wonderfully insightful about human life uh, and uh, human struggles. But in that book, uh, and part of it at least, the young David Copperfield falls earnestly and passionately in love with uh, a girl named Dora, uh, and eventually... Uh, he marries her, and uh, things sort of seem to be okay for a little while, but it turns out that their happiness is not matched by their passion. He discovers, uh, the young Copperfield, that they're, uh, though they are madly in love, they're not united in mind and purpose. Their marriage was a, a marriage of, of deep heartfelt conviction, but they were kind of operating from different uh, perspectives uh, and their minds, if you like, were in different places. Passion, in other words, Dickens is trying to say in his novel, passion is not everything. Uh, There's more to uh, life than earnestness and zeal and passion. And here in this section of Acts, we encounter a number of groups of people who are passionate, zealous or committed, but who are misguided uh, or incomplete in some way. Some of the people here in this chapter understand something of the gospel. Uh, Some of it understand, it seems, very little. And others understand almost nothing at all. Uh, And as we continue this morning our series through uh, the last chapters of the book of Acts, we're confronted, I think, with the reality that earnestness and zeal for the gospel uh, or in ministry or whatever it is, that earnestness and zeal is not everything we're confronted with the importance of knowing the whole truth and the whole gospel. Last week, uh, for those who uh, were here, we looked at the beginning of chapter 18. We saw Paul in Corinth. We saw Paul planting the church there. And at the beginning of this section, he moves on from that. He moves on from Corinth and he goes to Ephesus. He goes with his ministry, his new ministry partners, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were not only partners in his ministry, but also in his tent-making business. And he goes with them from Corinth to Ephesus. Once they reach Ephesus, Paul leaves them there and he goes on to other places to build the church and to strengthen the church Uh, in those other places, but while he's away from Ephesus, an enthusiastic man by the name of Apollos turns up and he begins doing ministry in Ephesus. We're told in verse 24 that he was a learned man, 
with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke uh, with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism uh, of John. He was Apollos, a gifted man, uh, knowledgeable, a passionate speaker, an accurate teacher, and yet we're told that something was missing. He had all this uh, in, in his favour, if you like, but there was still something that was absent. He knew, we're told, only the baptism of John. We'll see in a minute uh, what that was and why that was a problem, but for the moment it's enough, I think, for us to know that it was a problem and that Priscilla and Aquila could see that it was a problem as well. These wise uh, gospel workers that Paul had left in Ephesus saw Apollos' ministry and saw that something was missing from uh, his understanding of the gospel. Now, we live in a world uh, much like David Copperfield's world, I think, where earnestness and passion is often considered a substitute for truth, uh, where the heart is a substitute for the mind. Uh, we assess a person's suitability based on their enthusiasm rather than their accuracy. Uh, it's a great problem, I think, actually in church ministry because we rely on volunteers to do ministry. And so we naturally ask the question, well, who's willing to do it? But sometimes the people who are willing are not necessarily the people who are best equipped. Uh, and sometimes the people who are best equipped are not the people who are willing. But accuracy, uh, Priscilla and Aquila point out in their dealings with Apollos, accuracy matters, particularly with respect to the gospel. Uh, it matters if a person doing the teaching in Sunday school or in youth group or uh, in church, it matters if they have a, th a thorough grasp of the gospel. They need to have a thorough grasp of the gospel. It matters if they continually leave out important elements of what it means to know Christ. It matters if over time they subtly distort things or so thoroughly confuse people that even though they're trying to be accurate, people are left, up, left not knowing what the truth really is. One of my favourite quotes uh, of all time is from J.C. Ryle, a 19th century London minister, where he describes the gospel as a, a medicine, a curiously compounded and uh, delicately compounded medicine that's very easily spoiled. And he goes on to list some of the ways that the gospel can be spoiled. You've probably heard me quote this before, but he writes, you may spoil the gospel by substitution. You have only to withdraw from the eyes of the sinner the grand object which the Bible proposes to faith, Jesus Christ, and to substitute another object in his place, the church, the ministry, the confessional, baptism, or the Lord's Supper, and the mischief is done. Substitute anything for Christ and the gospel is totally spoiled. You may spoil the gospel by addition. You have only to add to Christ, the grand object of faith, some other objects as equally worthy of honour and the mischief is done. Add anything to Christ and the gospel ceases to be the pure gospel. You may spoil the gospel by interposition. You have only to push something between Christ and the eye of the soul to draw away the sinner's attention from the Saviour and the mischief is done. You may spoil the gospel by disproportion. You have only to attach an exaggerated importance to the secondary things of Christianity and a diminished importance to the first things and the mischief is done. Once alter the proportions of the parts of the truth and the truth soon becomes downright error. Last but not least, 
you may completely spoil the gospel by confused and contradictory directions, complicated and obscure statements about faith, baptism, church privileges, and the benefits of the Lord's Supper, all jumbled together and thrown down without order before hearers make the gospel no gospel at all. Well, I love uh, to go back to those words of Ryle again and again because they remind me in my public teaching ministry that I need to know and to teach the full gospel and not to distort that gospel in small and subtle ways because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to accidentally distort the gospel, to turn it into something less than it really is. To push something between uh, the sinner and Christ. Though he was passionate, Apollos had an incomplete understanding of the gospel and so was in danger of communicating that incomplete gospel to others as well, much to the peril of those who heard him. And so Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos the full way of God more adequately. But notice the way that they do that. Notice the way that they uh, address Apollos' incomplete gospel. They invite him to their home to explain what's missing. They don't, first of all, uh, denounce him in public. Uh, They don't get up in the synagogue and go, well, (laughs) stop listening to this man, he's a heretic. They don't refuse to have anything to do with him. What they do is they take him uh, to their home and they patiently explain the word of God more adequately. It's so easy for us to put good people off and actually to harden them in their inaccuracy by treating them with disdain or contempt, by treating them roughly uh, or treating them as heretics the moment they utter something that's not true uh, or something that's not entirely complete. Yes, truth is important, but so is the way that we seek to guide people into, into the, more into the truth, into a more accurate understanding of the truth. And yes, there are people who are deliberate false teachers, people who ought to be exposed for what they are. Yes, there's a time and place uh, for public, uh, publicly refuting a teaching. Uh, there are times when people ought to be fought with sound arguments and careful explanation of the Scriptures, but there are also very many people who are just misguided, uh, whose understanding is limited. There are people who are patient uh, to receive an explanation uh, of the truth of the Bible. And because of the wisdom of uh, Priscilla and Aquila and because of Apollos' willingness to be taught and to be corrected, Apollos becomes a man of great usefulness uh, in the cause of the gospel. We're told in verse 28 and uh, 27 and 28 of chapter 18 that he was a prodigious help and was used mightily by God in proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So earnestness alone is not enough. Apollos needs to know the truth of God more accurately uh, and we need to know the truth of God accurately so that we can communicate it accurately to others as well. Uh, Then as chapter 19 begins, we discover Paul uh, doing something very similar to what Priscilla and Aquila did. We discover Paul correcting the incomplete gospel of another group of Christians uh, in Ephesus as well. In chapter 19, Paul finally returns from his travels elsewhere. And when he returns, he finds these disciples and he asks them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? To which they replied, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
when Paul quizzes them further, kind of drills down to what the issue is, it turns out that these disciples have been baptised, but only into the baptism of John. It sounds very similar to what was going on uh, with Apollos. And Paul goes on to explain what the problem was with uh, these disciples and their understanding of the gospel. He says in verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one uh, coming after him, that is, in Jesus. The remedy uh, is to be baptised into the name of Jesus. The remedy to their situation, verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Note uh, that the remedy is not not to receive the Holy Spirit. The reception of the Holy Spirit is actually the result of something else being remedied, which is they were baptised into the name uh, of Jesus. It's a bit tricky to understand uh, what's going on here, But it's helpful to kind of take a step back, I guess, and to think a bit more carefully about what position these disciples were in. Uh, When John the Baptist came, Paul says he came preaching a baptism of repentance. That is, he came saying to people, don't trust in being born into the right family uh, or having the right heritage or, or anything like that. What you need to do is to really turn away from sin and to seek from God the forgiveness that he's promised Uh, and the rescue that God has promised in the Saviour that he uh, promised to send. That rescue, said John, involves not only forgiveness for sins, but also the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, to make people holy and righteous and to make uh, people God, that God could make a people for himself who walk uh, in his ways. These disciples that Paul meets here in Ephesus had faithfully done what John the Baptist had called people to do. That is, they turned from sin and were waiting for God's Messiah. John said, turn away from sin and and look for the Messiah that God has promised. And these people had faithfully done that. But then Paul says to them, but what you don't realise is the Messiah has come and that Messiah is Jesus. And because Jesus has come and he's died and he's rose again, the Spirit, which God had promised in the Old Testament, that Spirit has now been poured out. Jesus had brought decisive forgiveness for sins on the cross and he's poured out the Spirit on the people who know and trust him. And now that this Messiah has come, you need to put your trust in him. It's important for us to realise that when Jesus came, faithful Old Testament believers who really trusted God, who were patiently waiting for God's Messiah, still needed to hear the message about Jesus. And they needed to explicitly put their trust uh, in him as well. Uh, Old Testament believers needed to identify with what God had done in Christ when they heard the gospel. The book of Acts, in other words, represents a kind of time of transition for those who already knew God, from faith in a Messiah who was to come to faith uh, in a Messiah who had finally arrived. The way they were to do that, to identify with what Jesus has done, was through baptism into the name of Jesus. So John's baptism was, Paul says, just a baptism of repentance. Uh, It was an acknowledgement of sin and an expression of hope in what God was going to do. Christian baptism is an acknowledgement of sin in the same way, but it's 
Hope is anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christian baptism is not only a sign of what the problem is, we're stained by sin and need to be washed clean by the work of Jesus, by the uh, person and work of Jesus. Uh, baptism, Christian baptism is also a sign of what the solution is. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, we're forgiven and cleansed through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ and makes us more and more like Jesus every day. So it's not through baptism that we receive the Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit. uh, And baptism is a sign of that, uh, a sign of that uh, truth of the gospel. And these Old Testament believers needed to put their hope uh, in Jesus in order to receive that promised Holy Spirit. And they did that through uh, baptism. Uh, as I said, Apollos seems to be, have been in a similar situation. He'd repented, he'd turned to God through the ministry of John, he'd learned about Jesus, his life and probably his death and resurrection. But it seems like he hadn't joined all the dots. He was still kind of, it was all a bit foggy for him. Uh, and so Priscilla and Aquila had to explain how it all worked, who Jesus uh, truly was. And after they helped him, the description of his ministry is, is very significant. Verse 28, For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is kind of the new tone of his ministry after being helped by Priscilla and Aquila. He could prove to people that Jesus really was the Christ. Well, although none of us are in the same position as any of these people, as Apollos or these disciples of John, because we aren't living through that time of transition, nevertheless, this passage is a reminder, I think, that genuine Christianity requires more than a generic trust in God. Uh, There are many people who believe that God exists, who are spiritual in some sense, who subscribe to the Bible's moral values, perhaps, who might even trust God in some sense. But that's not the gospel. Uh, The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus' death and resurrection. And receiving the gospel means trusting that what God has done in Jesus is sufficient to save you. Receiving the gospel means acknowledging the need to be cleansed and trusting that in Jesus God has provided that cleansing. Receiving the gospel means receiving Jesus. I have a book on my shelf at home uh, by a Jewish scholar. Uh, And his understanding of the Old Testament is impeccable. You would think this man was a Christian because his interpretation of the the Old Testament is that what people needed to do was to humble themselves before God and trust in what God had promised. (laughs) And I remember reading that book and thinking to myself, wow, this guy's so close, isn't he? But it's, although it's close, it's not close enough because God wants us to know and love his son, Jesus. Uh, And to reject Jesus is to reject the gospel. It's not enough to have a general sense of humility and a general sense of trust in God. No, our humility and our trust in God needs to be anchored in the death and resurrection uh, and the person of Jesus Christ. So if you have a uh, generic belief in God, that's not enough. Uh, it's not enough to believe that God exists or to be devoted to ordering your life according to God's laws. You need to entrust yourself to God. If you haven't been baptised, that means being baptised. If you have been baptised, it means appropriating in faith the truth which baptism communicates. 
our need of cleansing and the gift of that cleansing through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, before we move on, there's one uh, more question I think worth asking, which is what about the spectacular manifestations uh, of the Spirit here when these people are baptised and when Paul lays his hands on them? What do we make of those things? Should we expect uh, those things when we become a Christian? Should we expect to speak in tongues and to prophesy when we become Christians uh, or when we're baptised? And to answer that question, I think we need to look at the evidence of Acts and the New Testament as a whole rather than just focusing uh, on this one passage. It seems that in Acts, when the Spirit breaks new ground, goes into new areas, works among new people, that there's a physical manifestation of it. Those physical manifestations aren't always present at other times. Throughout the book of Acts, loads of people are converted. Loads of thousands, 3,000 on one day in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but often... But sorry, only on a handful of occasions in the book of Acts is the, are those conversions accompanied by a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's true throughout the New Testament. There's no indication, apart from a few episodes in the book of Acts, of ordinary conversions being accompanied by spectacular manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, instead, what's going on in Acts is that these spectacular events serve as a witness of what God is doing. They serve as a witness that God is pouring out His Holy Spirit as He'd promised. That He's pouring it out not just to Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Uh, that He's pouring out to people who had until one time been locked up in the Old Testament and who needed to know the truth of the Gospel. Uh, these spectacular manifestations, in other words, are answers, answer questions like, how can we know that the Gospel is for Gentiles? Well, we know because the Spirit was poured out visibly on Cornelius. How can we know uh, that the Gospel is for those who only heard of the baptism of John? Well, we can know because the Spirit was poured out on these people in Acts chapter 19 when they heard about Christ. In short, we shouldn't expect what happened in this chapter to be a regular part of ordinary Christian experience. Uh, and in many ways, that's the testimony of the rest of chapter 19, as we'll see. So Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos, uh, his incomplete gospel. Then Paul corrects the incomplete gospel of some of the Ephesian believers. And finally, in uh, the last section that we'll look at, God exposes the misunderstanding of a number of uh, brothers uh, here in Ephesus. After baptising these believers in Jesus, Paul continues his ministry in Ephesus for another two years. He preaches in the synagogue. He ends up being tossed out because they don't like what they're hearing. But he continues. He preaches in this public lecture hall, possibly a kind of school building. Uh, and he does that, as I said, for another couple of years. And during that time, God also does great miracles through Paul. Uh, he'd done great miracles through some of the other apostles, and now he does great miracles through Paul as well. Uh, to the extent that uh, even things that Paul has touched were taken to sick people and they were healed. And some of the other people in Ephesus like what they see. They see the power of God in Paul and they try to get in on what God is doing. They try to drive out some evil spirits themselves uh, by invoking the name of Jesus, but without really knowing Jesus. We read in verse 13... 
Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They'd say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. <laughs> I love that. In the name of the guy that he's, he's talking about, come out of this guy. <laughs> so, so, as though they would be, the evil spirits would be convinced uh, by that uh, ridiculous statement. And then on one occasion, uh, the, the seven sons of Sceva who are part of the Jewish priestly class, uh, when they try doing it, they get this rude shock. One of the evil spirits that they're trying to drive out says to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Uh, And the possessed man jumps on them, overpowers them, beats them so that they uh, flee naked and bleeding. But the upside uh, of all that, if there is an upside I suppose, was that the rest of the people heard about what had happened Uh, were terrified and they feared God. People were driven by this error of these uh, seven sons of Sceva. People were driven to confess their sins and to turn away from their former way of life. Look at verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. Uh, A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total value came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. One drachma was about one day's wage. Uh, So 50,000 drachmas is the wages of 50,000 workers for one day. Uh, Or for one worker, for its 137 years of daily wages. Uh, all up in smoke in one day. That's about, by today's standard, that's about $11 million on the bonfire. It's an extraordinary amount of money uh, to send up in flames, but such was the power of the gospel. Such was the conviction that these people had of the truth of who Jesus was and the need to turn away from sin, to seek from him forgiveness and the power of a new life, such was the, 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 the conviction that they had that these people sent all that up in flames in, in one day. You see, that's the real power of the Holy Spirit Luke wants us to see in this chapter. That's the power that he emphasises in verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It was the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that worked powerfully in the faith and repentance of many people. You see, the sons of Sceva, they wanted power. They were interested in power. They looked at Paul. They saw the miracles that he was doing, and they thought to themselves, well, let's get in on this. Let's get some of this power. They wanted to be great like Paul, but the great work of the Holy Spirit as these events in chapter 19 show, is the, is the great work of radical repentance and faith. And that's always a great miracle. It is a great miracle when you see someone turn from sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes those great miracles are attended by great, uh, by great cost. Uh, a good friend of mine, before he became a Christian, had been a mad keen kite surfer. He was obsessed he would say he was chasing after the wind. Uh, And literally he was chasing after the wind. Uh, And when he became a Christian, he felt felt convicted that his 
his love of kite surfing was standing in the way of him loving Jesus. And so he got rid of uh, all his gear. Uh, he got rid of it. Uh, he stopped kite surfing because he was so convinced that what he needed to do was to love uh, Jesus with all his heart. Uh, clearly, kite surfing isn't uh, sinful, but that was uh, what was standing in the way of him following Jesus. And so, like these people here in Acts 19, uh, he gave it up. Uh, I've known other people who, having become Christians, threw out books and movies from their library because they no longer fitted with their new life in Christ. People who've given up drugs uh, and alcohol in order to serve uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a great test of the work of the Spirit in our lives, I think, to ask the question, what evidence is there of radical repentance and faith in my life? When was the last time that reading the Bible or sitting in church led you to confessing sin and to turning away from it? When was the last time it changed your way of life? When was the last time it led you to get rid of something, uh, to do something differently? It may have been something quite big. It might have been forgiving someone who you hadn't been able to forgive for 20 years. Uh, It may have been giving up drugs. Uh, It might have been something that seemed quite small but was no less of a miracle than any of those things. It might have been no longer mocking people behind their back. No longer grumbling. Being more generous. Those things are great miracles of God. Great works that are the fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit. If you find that there doesn't seem to be any evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, then the remedy is not to go straight to the Spirit, if you like, to go straight to seek the power. The remedy is not either to uh, seek to generate that power in yourself. The remedy is to seek the Saviour through whom the Holy Spirit comes. The remedy is to seek Jesus and to cling on to him, to humble yourself before him, to seek the one who pours out the Holy Spirit without measure. And the more desperate you feel in your, uh, in your uh, helplessness, the more desperately you need to cling to Jesus. And the more hopeless you feel your situation is, the more hopefully you need to look to him. Well, uh, Acts chapter 18 and 19 reminds us, I think, that the gospel is not a gospel of tricks uh, or impressive feats, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's the good news that in Jesus' death and uh, resurrection, we receive forgiveness from every stain of sin. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has poured out on those who come to him the powerful Holy Spirit in order that we might live for him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would... Make your truth known to us in all its fullness. That we would know the heart of the gospel, that is, the person of Jesus Christ. That we would know the heart of the gospel, that in Christ, 
our sins have been crucified. We have been crucified with him. And the life we live, we no longer live to ourselves, but to him who died for us and who lives in us through the Holy Spirit. Father, please drive that truth home into all our hearts so that we know it for ourselves and so that we can communicate that truth to others. Lord, drive that truth home to our hearts and to the hearts of others so that we might see more of those great miracles of the gospel, uh, of people turning from sin and selfishness and a life without you turning to a life of knowing and loving your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.